0: and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. Last time I ate anything in the Bunker studio, I was tasting some insects. But since it's Christmas, it seemed a good time to try something less crunchy, a bit less leggy. So we've invited cheesemonger Ned Palmer to bring in some of his favourite British cheeses. Ned started his career at Neil's Yard and is the author of two books on British cheese. He runs the Cheese Tasting Company. Hello, Ned. Welcome to The Bunker.
1: Hi, Ros. Thanks for having me.
0: Ned, back in 2014, Liz Truss, who is the Foreign Secretary, of course, and now perhaps our next PM even, said it was a disgrace that Britain imported two-thirds of its cheese. D- did she have a point? Well, I hate to admit
1: this, but, you know, yeah, to a degree, um, maybe not for the reasons she thinks. I think that we could be a lot prouder of our cheese in Britain, the, in Great Britain and Ireland, than we are. We've been making cheese for 6,000 years. We have got quite good at it. There's more than just cheddar and Stilton. And I say just in quotes because those are amazing cheeses. So, you know, we could carry, we could eat more cheese, import the same amount and eat even more of our own. So what was the cheese that got you hooked ah, on the substance? I feel like you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, that was Chathawen's Gorwith Kefili. And uh, my friend made it on his farm in Llandwy Brevy in West Wales. And I was, I was between jobs. I'd been discovering how you can't make a living doing small-scale avant-garde political theatre. So he said, come and sell cheese with me at, at Burrow Market. And I had a taste of the cheese, and I realised that all the cheese I'd ever eaten before in my life was rubbish. And he rapidly got me a job at Neil's Yard Dairy if I promised to stop bothering him.
0: One of the things that interests me is when we start eating cheese, do we know, based on the archaeological record, when people stopped being lactose intolerant, which I think most of the world was for most of humanity, and started eating this
1: stuff? Well, we find evidence for cheesemaking before we find the evidence for, I love this phrase, adult lactase persistence, so the ability of adults to digest milk. And you find the evidence of dairying before then, in the form of sh- of shards of pottery with traces of milk fat. So in a sense, the theory is it has to be cheese because you wouldn't keep milk if you're lactose intolerant. But, and here's great news for everyone, you can eat cheese if you're lactose intolerant. There is no or only a trace element of it. And so I think, I like to think that people figured out how to make cheese in order to be able to consume that milk. And then you find the evidence in the bone record from, I think, around three and a half thousand BC when people start to become, you know, adults become lactose tolerant. So I think that's pretty smart.
0: And where do the cultures that make cheese develop from? Because we there was a period a few years ago when everyone was trying to make sourdough or it seemed that way and there were there were cultures that you could buy or you could start your own by, bringing, by, by leaving a bit of flour and water out to bring in yeasts from the air. What are the things that make cheese, cheese?
1: Gosh, that's a beautiful question. So people might struggle, people might argue over the definition of cheese, but I'm going to say that it is fermented animal milk and not, for example, nut milk with stuff in it. So you need milk. uh, The milk is full of lactose. You add um, a starter culture, lactophilic bacteria that eats the milk sugar, converts it to lactic acid. That's where that lactose tolerance thing comes. You could drain that and make really simple cheese. So you would have a kind of, if you think of the Ur cheese, the most ancient cheese is Philadelphia, basically. So that's the most authentic cheese in the world. Um, and you drain that, but it wouldn't keep very well, too much moisture. So to get rid of more moisture, you add rennet, an enzyme that coagulates milk. I'm actually doing the coagulate milk mime, but our listeners can't see that. Um it quite lets milk gets rid of more of that whey, adds salt, um, which makes it taste good, sucks out moisture, protects it from spoilage, bacteria, and drain off the rest of the whey and you have cheese. So all of the cheeses in the world, bar a couple, are made like that. But when I say you add starter culture, that only started happening as a step in the 19th century because before then people didn't know what that was. You know, they thought it was God or goddesses, or the goddess. Um, So they just let their milk sour naturally and to turn into cheese. So one could do that now. You could buy some milk and let it just turn spontaneously into cheese.
0: And now people all over the world eat cheese, but was it purely a European thing, as far as we know, until a few hundred years ago or so? Was it something that only Europeans did, eating cheese?
1: Well, cheese turns up before Europe does which is cool. You know, I'm not a nationalist uh, <laughs> at all. I barely believe in nations as, as, as entities. But um, the first evidence appears in the Fertile Crescent. So what's now bits of Iran, Turkey, Syria, around there, um, in the form of those shards of pottery. And then really beautifully, the, the evidence starts to move north into Europe as the population expanded as people got better at feeding themselves, you know, it's a population explosion, they headed into Europe. And so cheese making, at least as far as we can tell, originates in what we call the Middle East, for want of a better phrase, um, and, and heads to Europe. Then it does seem to become fundamentally a European thing or a Eurasian thing. Obviously, in parts of northern China, they make some cheese. I think the Tibets make some, Tibetans make something like cheese, but it does seem to be a Eurasian thing.
0: And what kind of cheese would ordinary people have been eating a couple of centuries ago? If, you know, you had this mythical Labour, Labourer Thomas Hardy style, taking their lump of cheese and their bread to eat at Eden when they get their lunch break, what would that have been?
1: So we're talking like ordinary everyday people cheese, not metropolitan elite cheese. Okay. (laughs) I think it would be in Britain, I think largely it would be hard cheese. And I think a couple of hundred years ago, it would still be cow's milk cheese. Um, they did the cheesemakers did skim off fat to make butter or skim off cream to make butter which you could sell as a premium product so you did tend to get skim milk cheese being sort of reserved for the servants and, and the poor and the sailors and that I don't think it was all skim milk I think something like cheddar or the territorial cheeses like Wensleydale or Lancashire those were kind of you know the labourers cheeses probably pretty good
0: okay so we've got uh several cheeses in the studio now, which are certainly making their presence felt.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you're going to talk me through tasting a, a couple of them. Okay. And these are all British, although looking at this cheese board, I mean, I, I would almost have said this could be a French cheese board, because it's not It's not what I think of in West as, as, as hard British cheese. But let's talk about the one that to me looks like brie, but it isn't brie, and try that one.
1: Grand. So... Um... It looks a lot like Brie. It's a Brie style called Baron by God made in Suffolk by the Crickmoors. And now Johnny did go to France, to Ile-de-France, to the Danger family, who are the top Brie makers, and, and watched very carefully. So it is, you know, I mean, I think Johnny even calls it Brie rather than Brie style. You know, the only difference to me is it's not made in, in that area of, of, of France. And this was typical. So we, the British, or, Bishnuris lost almost all of our tradition traditions of cheesemaking, and had to go to the continent. This is so gooey. Was away. Let's just try and something slightly less unnerving. There we go. <laughs> uh, so, having lost so much of our tradition, we went to the continent, and a lot of cheeses in this period we call the cheese Renaissance in the seventies were based or inspired by, say, French cheeses. So this is very much in that tradition. Although Johnny started in, um, I think, less than ten years ago now. Should we try some?
0: Yeah, let's try some. And this is going to be something sort of fairly new for me because my che- taste in cheese is actually quite bland. I am not a cheese connoisseur. In fact, I brought some. I bought some Wensleydale with cranberry from Sainsbury's a few days ago. Ross, Ross, I am sorry Ross. to say, in a in a sort of desperation, I wanted a Wensleydale, and that was the only available. So this is going to, I think, hit me hit me quite hard. Hmm. Mm. Actually, that's great, and it's not at all. Do you know the great thing? It's not at all cabbagey because I have a horror of things that are a bit cabbagey and that's not cabbagey at all.
1: So that was a really good flavour observation in that kind of white mould ripened cheese like brie or camembert or baron, by God, you often get that cabbagey flavour. So so that was a very very astute observation. I'd say, not to ruin it for you, I'd say there's a trace of the cabbage in there.
0: Maybe, but not in a way that I don't like. And it's quite right. nutty as well. Yeah. And I'm thinking, which nut? Which nut would you say it was, kind it of? hazelnut? Yeah, a bit of hazelnut, I think.
1: Good. I like to be able to specify the type of nut. You know, I think when you see descriptions on people's websites and it says nutty, I think, well, what do you mean? You know, that's a like want mm. more, more definition. Um you know, to say something about this beautiful breed that people can't see. When you buy some supermarket stuff, it's usually very pure white. That's look like a virgin snowfield, not very really interesting looking, and that's one mould, penicillin candidum, which lazy cheesemakers would spray on the cheese, uh, dominates the cheese. You get that really uniform look that supermarkets love, but it's quite boring. I like multicultural cheese. So this has got penicillin candidum. It's got some geotrichum, which is what gives it cabbage. Maybe a bit of yeast, and the good cheesemaker or the good affiner who ripens cheese is a mold wrangler, getting all those different populations to get on, and you know, a sort of hybrid figure, and you get something better and stronger out of that.
0: Hmm, that was good. Oh, and by the way, with the Baron Bigger, what should I, if I had could drink anything with that? What should I drink with it? Champagne.
1: Or indeed any lovely sparkling wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love a Cremon de Limoux. very nice. Um, those mm-hmm. champagnes that have that slightly toasty, brioche note goes yeah. very well. I had that then, at my wedding. Grandma oh, fantastic. Yeah. Um, and the mouthfeel. So you have a bit of brie, you have a bit of champagne at the same time. It's like a moussey explosion in the mouth. Really gorgeous.
0: Mm. OK, let's move on to the hard cheese here.
1: Are you playing it safe, Ross?
0: Yeah, I'm playing it safe. Cool. So this is a hard, yeah, hard so cheese, hard and it cheese. looks a bit like a very mature cheddar to my untrained eye, but I'm sure to Ned's it doesn't. It looks far more sophisticated than that.
1: Well, you nailed it, Ross. It is a mature <laughs> cheddar. It's made oh. by the lovely Tom Calver in, uh, in Somerset. It's called Westcom cheddar. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an absolute beauty It is the one from the book um, You don't have to eat all Oh no, I tell you what I mean slightly smaller piece Oh great There
0: you go Ned is not cutting off the nose of the cheese Which is a total faux pas And I do know that He cuts off a slice yes. Which is much better Right, let's try this one mm.
1: It's like licking an old country church Eating this <laughs>
0: <laughs> mm. Yeah it is kind of recognisably cheddar, but nothing like the cheddar <laughs> that my son has grated <laughs> in a bag and pours over most of the things that he eats at the moment. Yeah, we're going to fix that. Much more complex than that. Mm. Yeah. So that. Um, I'm just trying to tease out what, what, what I can. What flavours? What flavours do you find in this?
1: Well, going from the ground <laughs> up, as it were, I get an earthiness, grass, mm. hay. And I really do get something like that sort of cool, moist stone of a lovely old parish church. So proper cheddar, big cylinders wrapped in cloth uh, and then covered in fat of some sort, usually lard. And that means, A, the cheese breathes. You get this lovely texture, a bit more open than some of the sort of more plastic-wrapped cheddar that the mould grows on the outside of that cloth and that gives those earthy notes and that old stone. They they mature in great tall barns like aircraft hangars. And there's something barny about it for me. When I go into one of those, I well up a bit because it's so beautiful seeing the serried ranks of cheddars, you know. Um, So a lot of that and you're just so much more... But balance... You know, there's complexity, there's balance. It's got some acidity, but it isn't hurting my mouth. You get this mm. vindaloo thing. It's always chaps come into the shop and say, I want something that hurts. And I'd say, why do you want food that hurts? Um, so restraint and balance are big things for me. Good cheddar.
0: And how long is this cheddar matured for?
1: So this is a special batch with a funky name that I can't remember, but it's 24-month Westcombe. It's
0: even older than years. COVID. I know, right? When you think how much... About- <laughs> That tiny <laughs> virus has managed to spread in the past two years in all its different forms. And so this cheese, all that time, has been sitting patiently, just waiting, for, to, yeah, waiting for us to eat it. It's
1: so Tom actually set a thing up years ago called Cheese Cam and it was just a video camera on a cheddar <laughs> maturing, so it does nothing. He did it for joke, and it had the colossal number of hits as people... I think there's something calming Zen-like about it, just sitting there watching the cheddar mature. <laughs>
0: Right, let's try the blue cheese. Oh, good. Which is not normally something I would eat at all. So um, I'm quite I'm quite curious about this. What is this cheese? Uh, do you want to have a guess? Well, it looks a bit Stilton-y to me.
1: Very good. It's called Uh It is... Um, I need to say this the right way. So this is a raw milk Stilton-style cheese. You can't make raw milk cheese and call it Stilton, even if you use the method, if you make it in the correct county. So this is named for the old Anglo-Saxon name of the town of Stilton, which is Stitchleton.
0: Mm. It's made by
1: a lovely man called Joe Schneider, who happens to be American. We don't hold that against him because he makes really good cheese.
0: <laughs> yes, there's not normally a lot of good cheese that comes out of America, is it? I mean, Monterey Jack and I'm just wondering what else has come well, out of the American I cheese-making so culture.
1: There's a bit of a misconception, and plenty of Americans suffer from this. And obviously, they they brought cheese whiz to the world, which is problematic, and they invented the cheese factory in the 1850s. That's problematic. But the first governor of Massachusetts was from a cheese-making family, so mm-hmm. they have uh, a, you know a several hundred-year-old tradition at, on the East Coast more, but in places like Wisconsin, Vermont. They have made really beautiful cheese for a long time. And funnily enough, it's descended from British cheese making culture. You know, the Dutch and French didn't really take hold in that in that sense.
0: Is it a pasteurisation thing? Is it feeling that it's just dangerous because it's not?
1: I think that's a big part of it. They're, they're even weirder than the English government, or the British governments are about about pasteurisation. And they're pretty weird. I mean, and, and they, you know, there's an idea that raw milk is somehow naturally toxic. Which it isn't, perhaps part of the issue is the happier and healthier your your animals are, the safer the milk and the more likely you could you could leave it raw and if you have very big feedlot type farms, they're not as healthy, and you probably be, you need to pasteurize that milk. I think it's a big part of it.
0: So I can see the blue mould in this, which which I automatically have a kind of, oh, my God, it's blue mould. I shouldn't be eating that. Which But I need to overcome that, don't I? You do, yes. <laughs> yes. It's fine.
1: I, this is, it seems so arbitrary. But although if my bread got mouldy, I probably would throw it away. Mm. I love mouldy cheese. And funnily enough, the blue mould in this is the same species of mould that you get in bread. You're looking very, very sceptical. <laughs> I, <love> <laughs> I will say that a sign for me, quality in a blue cheese, is that there isn't very much blue, and you can see this in this lovely piece of stitch. That it's not the blue that we want to taste. It is the way the blue interacts with the cheese and ripens it. And so, so on the whole, I prefer my blues to just to have that light veining of blue. It shouldn't be too blue.
0: Whoops. Yeah, I'm going to try that now.
1: <sighs> Wonderful texture. It's like fondant ice cream. Mm.
0: Mm. Mm, that's very, 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 very rich. <laughs> I mean, you only need a tiny amount of this cheese to be, to be you know, to be quite full of cheese. But it is not, <laughs> as I expected, you know, it does not taste mouldy. Good. Which is good. <laughs> good. It's... I'm sorry, I'm, I'm such a philistine, you really. <laughs> No,
1: not at all. I mean, I, I love to give people cheeses like that if they're, you know, a starter blues or if they feel a bit... Mm. Traumatized by blue because it's a lot more gentle, and again, it has that balance. Um, you actually nailed something there I, with really great cheese, it's so fulfilling. I mean, even spiritually fulfilling to, that you don't need to eat tons of it. Obviously, everyone should buy massive bits, particularly at Christmas, but you don't need tons. And I noticed one day when I'd forgotten to get cheese, and Imo, my wife, wanted a you know, cheese sauce, so I got some at corner shop square cheddar stuff. And I kept noshing on it really weirdly compulsively as if i just suddenly developed a very brief food problem <laughs> because it wasn't fulfilling me. And I kept needing more of it in a really weird way. Whereas, you know, I could probably eat more stitch than you, but, um, but yeah, it's, it is more intense.
0: But it is, yeah, it's good. It's much better than I expected. Great. In fact, I could, I could, yeah, I would happily eat that again. I'm going to eat a bit more now. Oh, well, what should I drink this one with? Well, I mean, you know you the story
1: eat uh, this one with rather? It, yes, I think I get what you mean, yeah, um, the story is port, and i 'm a bit more skeptical about that. I think the reason people have port and Stilton is because we were at war with the French at the same time as Stilton became a famous sort of national trendy foodstuff. Obviously, it's not much of a coincidence because we wore the French an awful lot. But um, so we had to get wine from Portugal. It wasn't all that good. People put brandy in the casks to keep it and, and inadvertently invented port, which became, I think, trendy. It was the drink of the Whigs. So the Tories drank Claret, the Whigs drank Port. I think if you were trendy, progressive, metropolitan elite foodie in the 18th century, you had Stilton and Port on your table. I, like Porter, dark beer, rich, strong, dark beer like the Colonel Brewery's India Export Porter, or a stout. And that's a chocolatey richness that is just beautiful with the cheese. And also dessert wine. It's a lovely, lovely thing to have with the blue.
0: And Christmas, which is coming up. And for some of us, it will be a lonelier Christmas, perhaps, than we were hoping for. But there will still hopefully be cheese for those that want it. What are you having with your after your Christmas dinner?
1: Wow, yeah, great question. So I'm going to start off with a really non-patriotic Vacheran, which we'll have actually the night before, because you get a decent-sized Vacheran, it's in a box, you can stick it in the oven and bake it, make instant fondue. It's really low effort, so, you know, you're ready to do the big meal the next day, but people think you're really cool when you bring out the Vacheran, dip stuff in. On the day, we'll have some cheddar. We might have Weskin, we might have pitchfork, which is made by my friends the Chathawans. We'll have Stilton or Stichelton, and we will have something like the Brie. We might have Baron Bygod, we might have Tunworth, which is uh, a camembert style. Raymond Blanc says it's the best camembert in the world, so he's not allowed back into France until he takes it back. Uh, and, and probably a washed rind like this one that I can see you avoiding was, um, the Edmund Tew, which is a more pungent Wrinkly, aromatic style of cheese. I'm,
0: you know what? I'm going to ask you to eat that <laughs> and tell me about what it tastes like. Because sure. I don't want to ruin the vibe. Because <laughs> I think <laughs> that, that one that, is that. just a bit too much for my for my Philistine palate. So, please have a little bit, have a bit, of bit of that one. Okay, yeah, please. It looks a bit to me. Uh, it looks a bit like a so it It's got yep. that yeah, that brainy kind of outside. Um,
1: it is like a little yellow brain, isn't it?
0: Yes, yeah. a very small brain, a sort of you know dog sized brain. <laughs> rather than a human brain, hopefully. Uh, <laughs> so tell me, tell me what uh, that's that's rind. like, and what flavours are going on there.
1: So as a washed wine, which is a often a French style of cheese, uh, typically it's got a kind of farmy, barnyardy aroma. I'm being euphemistic, but I'm not allowed to say the things I really think it is. <laughs> <laughs> they were vigorously edited from both manuscripts. So farmy, barnyardy, a little bit of smoke, a little bit of meat when we eat, a bit yeasty when we eat some. Mm, luxuriant texture. Again, with the barnyardiness, a bit of intimate cow. Sorry, I just couldn't. A salty... And a, and a cleanness running through it, a lovely acidity that sort of lifts everything and balances the rest of the flavours. It's really beautiful. Wash rinds are the Marmite of the cheese world, but I strongly advise them. And a relatively mild one like this, Edmund 2, it's called, um, is a great starter cheese for that sort of thing. And, you know, on a Christmas cheese board, really luxurious and quite intense flavour.
0: I think the phrase intimate cow is going to stay, <laughs> stay with me for a long time. We were talking a bit earlier before the podcast began about cheese mongers who were in Difficulty or cheese makers that were in difficulty because uh, around the time of the first lockdown, because suddenly all their business to restaurants stopped, and they were worried they wouldn't be able to continue. And I think there was a there was a Lancashire that was and um, probably more that were in that situation. Hopefully, that's not going to happen again. But thinking about, I mean, how their cheeses, which you know about and have researched, that have actually died out, and that we we don't make and perhaps even can't make any more, but are just in the historical record. Archaeological cheeses, if you like, that have not even been recreated.
1: That is such a lovely question and and the answer is yes. I mean, there are the local cheeses, the territorials, many of which still exist, like Red Leicester, but there were more territorials. There was a Derbyshire cheese and not Sage Derby, and a cheese of itself, and that died out. I think by 1900 it disappeared and i could guess what it would be like we could look at recipes and we could have a stab at making it but we wouldn't know a hundred percent because cheese making is always this craft as well as a science so there are 18th century recipes for cheeses i'd love to have a bash at but again you don't really know what the cheese maker intended behind them but we could at least attempt to and i would love to we lost a lot of Small, and I mean physically small, soft local cheeses in World War II and the government sort of banned soft cheese making.
0: They banned it.
1: Yeah, Also, they had this idea that it would be more efficient to make large, hard cheeses and I kind of get the thinking behind that and maybe to pull milk more into factories rather than have lots of little makers. Also, in the darkest days of World War II, the uh, cheese ration in Britain was an ounce a week which would be catastrophic for me, unless you were a lumberjack or a canal boat driver. So I would have immediately retrained, and then you got a pound a week. But to cut an ounce, you need very you need hard cheese. So they turned a lot of the cheeses that survived into these harder, more acidic versions. So, so that was a sort of attrition. Uh, I would love to... You know people say, I'll oh, build a time machine and go back and kill Hitler. Well, I would build a time machine, and go back and try Neolithic cheese. Uh, because all we na- all we have is traces of fat on shards of Pottery. And I think that hints at soft, fresh, simple cheeses. But there's no reason to think they weren't making more techie cheeses. But we just don't know. We just don't know. Until someone makes me a time machine.
0: <laughs> Ned, it's been fantastic talking to you. Where did you buy these cheeses?
1: Well, I bought these yesterday at uh, the great cheese shop, Neil's Yard Dairy, in the Borough Market branch. Um... You can buy cheese online from a lot of places now, so a couple of other great shops are the Courtyard Dairy up in Lancashire or over in the southwest is the Fine Cheese Company.
0: And if you look on the show notes underneath this podcast, you'll find details of which cheeses we've tasted and where to get them. Ned, your book, A Cheesemonger's Compendium of British and Irish Cheese, is out now, published by Profile Books. Thanks so much for joining us on The Bunker. Thanks, Roz. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you like, you can help us keep going by backing us on the crowdfunder Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to get the show early and without ads, plus lots of extra benefits. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening.
1: The Bunker is presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was Andrew Harrison and the assistant producer was Yelena Sofrenerich. Audio production came from me, Robin Levan theme
0: by Kenny Dickinson and The Bunker is a Podmasters production.